From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club in Chicago, Illinois, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, further explorations of religion and the law. We air part one of our interview with attorney and author John Malk, whose work helped pave the way for a federal statute on religious land use. Later on the broadcast, our producer-at-large, Natasha Alford, explores the surprising eruptions of faith to be found in the Netflix breakout hit series, Orange is the New Black. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is author and attorney John Malk. Mr. Malk has practiced law for over 30 years and is the author of Paul on Trial, the Book of Acts as a Defense of Christianity. In his law practice, he has often represented churches and ministries in the Chicago area regarding religious land use. In 1998, John Malk was invited to testify before a congressional subcommittee on church zoning issues. His work in this area was instrumental in the drafting of Our Lupa, the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act of the year 2000. John Malk, welcome to Things Not Seen. It's good to be here, Dave. Well, to start off, I wonder if you'd be willing to explain briefly to our listeners which parts of the First Amendment apply specifically to religion. Well, the First Amendment has has two clauses that are explicitly religion, but when you get to land use and religious land use, it's really free exercise and establishment, but it's also a matter of free speech and freedom of association. So having a place where worshipers can come together or people of the same faith can come together and discuss issues and and talk about God and serve God really uh, is at the core of the First Amendment, four different provisions of the First Amendment, freedom of association, free speech, freedom of religion, and establishment are all implicated so if I'm hearing you correctly, the, the two clauses of the First Amendment that we oftentimes associate explicitly with uh, religious practice, the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause, those are included in religious land use. But when we talk about that issue, we're also talking about speech, we're talking about association, that there's a much wider sweep that's caught up in that. Yes. There's a there's a tension in the First Amendment sometimes between the the notion of establishment of religion by the state and free exercise of religion by religious minority groups. When we talk about something like the the use of space for religious practice, do you see those tensions playing out in terms of uh, uh, governmental authority, either pro or against religion, versus people's desire to use spaces for religious purposes? Oh, absolutely. All, all the time, rights are bumping up against other rights, and municipal interests in terms of controlling land use are often infringing on the ability of groups to freely come together and meet. And particularly, this impacts new religious groups and minority religions. The Catholics or Presbyterians mostly have buildings and facilities set up in every in every community, but the, 
but the Buddhists or the fast-growing Hispanic congregations or Korean congregations are pretty much shut out, and there isn't much sensitivity in many communities to the needs of these fast-growing groups. And why do you think that is? Why do you think that there is the the resistance to the acceptance of new religious groups in terms of uh, geographic land use? Yeah, so some of it's just ignorance, and some of it is... Uh, uh, the thought that religious groups don't contribute money, and that's that's another that's another form of ignorance. R- uh, really, one of the hot buttons uh, t- to me in this whole issue is the is the poor and the minority groups, which are helping in their communities. You think of a, an Hispanic congregation, maybe of twenty or thirty people, that's formed of Mexican immigrants, and they're helping people integrate into our society, find jobs, maybe learn learn English, uh, find a place to live, uh, get uh, a proper legalization. There are all of, all of these things that are happening in storefront churches. Uh, helping families, helping frightened teenagers, keeping them off of the streets. Our governmental authorities are pretty ignorant about. They're they're big on welfare, on public education, on police, on uh, on drug counseling. But there's sort of a paternalistic uh, attitude by government that we're going to help the poor. But when the poor are trying to empower themselves, and the storefront church and the small church is one of the primary means for the little people to come together and be somebody and be more than just a person and work together cooperatively and help change their community through faith and through all the good works that they do, why should government be uh, pushing them around and not cooperating with them? Basically, I think it's ignorance. Sometimes it's just paternalism. So you've used this phrase uh, a couple of times, storefront churches. I wonder if you'd tell our listeners what you mean by that term. When we say storefront church, what are we, what are we to think of? Uh, well, typically a storefront church is uh, a church that's moved into a financially obsolete business uh, in the inner city which nobody wants to rent anymore because it doesn't have parking or there's not enough commercial traffic or the the community is run down. And often churches uh, that can't afford to build a cathedral will move in and and rent for a few hundred dollars a month. This is what they can afford so 15, 20, 30 people can get together. And that's what I mean about the poorest of the poor often coming together to serve each other and to minister to the to the community <clears throat> but in a larger sense a storefront uh, is is symbolic of any new church that's kind of trying to grow uh, grow up and, and 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 get their own place so they may they may want to move into a, a shopping center that has a lot of vacancies or maybe just immigrants like the Koreans uh, about 30 years ago, there was one Korean church in Chicago. Now there's an estimated 400 of those, as Koreans have tended to migrate uh, to the Chicago area, and then they need a place to, to set up their churches, and there's no place to build because everything's built up except in the very outlying communities. Now, when when we use this phrase, new religious movements, that you used a moment ago, are we speaking simply about... Um, small immigrant Christian churches, like you meant, or are we talking about non-Christian 
practitioners as well. Oh, of course, we're talking about non-Christians as well, um, Muslims, uh, uh, Hindus, uh, Buddhists, uh, almost every religion, uh, one of the key components of it is people coming together and meeting together to talk, to worship, to pray. If you're just joining us, our guest is John Mauck, uh, an attorney who played a key role in the law known as ARLUPA, the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act. Well, for our listeners to begin to understand your work and the events that led to the passage of ARLUPA, the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act, we need to start to look back to the history of some laws and legal decisions. And one place to start might be with a 1990 court case uh, called Employment Division v. Smith. And I'm wondering if you'd give us a brief overview of what happened in that case. What was happening in America, uh, David, is that there was a proliferation of religions. And the Supreme Court had, had even decided that each person can have your reli- their own religion. You didn't have to belong to an established church. And so the free exercise of religion uh, protected broader and broader uh, areas of personal belief and conduct. But by, when it, that happened, it also ended up with more and more conflict between laws and what people believe. Almost any law would offend somebody's religion since there are so many different uh, faiths or ways of interpreting our faith. So the Supreme Court said, we've got to draw a line here, and we're going to change the way we interpret the Constitution because of the change in society. And so we're going to be much stricter on on, on religion knocking out uh, governmental laws. And Employment Division versus Smith was, was a... A decision that was uh, contrary to common sense in a lot of people's minds. A uh, a drug counselors two drug counselors were denied unemployment uh, compensation because they were smoking peyote, <laughs> and these guys are supposed to be drug counselors helping people. You see, but uh, peyote was part of their faith, and the Supreme Court said no, they don't get unemployment compensation because we want neutral laws. Uh, and they're not targeted at religion per se, they're enforceable. So this created uh, a, an uproar, an upheaval, as people saw that this was a way that government might restrict religious freedom. So if I'm hearing you correctly, the decision in 1990 was, if we have a law that applies neutrally to all citizens, we can't, uh, we, we don't recognize a religious exemption to that law. Have I heard you correctly? Well, not not quite. Okay. Uh, if it's neutrally and generally applicable, it will be presumed valid. And to overcome that, the, uh, the there are narrow, narrow exceptions to overcoming that. So when the Supreme Court handed down that decision in Employment Division v. Smith, some interpreted that basically as stripping individual religious protections away. And I'm wondering... Uh, Congress reacted to that, and how did Congress react? Congress passed the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which was designed basically to overrule the Supreme Court decision in Employment Division versus Smith. However, the Supreme Court had the last word, and and when the case went uh, case went back up to the Supreme Court, Supreme Court said, "No, you can't uh, overrule our decisions." And uh, RIFRA was declared invalid except as applied to the federal government. The main thrust of RIFRA uh, affecting the states was invalidated. But RIFRA still 
good law as regarding the federal government, as we've seen in the Hobby Lobby case. So it's still out there. So just to make sure that I've got the timeline correct, uh, there were a variety of, of Supreme Court cases prior to 1990, but in 1990, Employment Division versus Smith created a precedent where neutral and generally applicable law was assumed to apply uh, in the face of religious exemptions. Congress tried to react to that by passing RIFRA, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, and the Supreme Court then judged RIFRA to be null and void at the level of the states, although it still applies at the federal level. You should be a lawyer. You got it. Well, tell my mother <laughs> that, yes. <laughs> so did RIFRA actually solve the problems that were posed by Employment Division versus Smith, or did it raise some problems on its own? Well, it would it would have solved the problems if it if it had been held to be constitutional. But since it was it was ruled unconstitutional, uh, lawyers and those who were advocates for religious groups went back to the drawing boards and say, as we read this opinion, what can we do legislatively to to try and still protect our our religious rights and and uh, keep the Supreme Court from overruling us. So that's where RELUPA was born. And by RELUPA, just so that listeners know, we're talking about the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act. Is that correct? Yes. And and that's a that's a piece of legislation that that comes partly out of the area where you practice law, and that is the area of religious land use. So when we when we talk about religious land use, what specifically do we mean by that term? We mean having the right to own or rent a place where people can come together and meet uh, f for worship and other religious exercise, particularly in face of the zoning laws, which in almost every community in America sharply restrict uh, what uh, certain buildings can be used for. Now, I come from the South, and the way that we've always heard this is that if you have a church in a in a neighborhood, you can't uh, put a bar or uh, a liquor store near that church because of the blue laws. But if I'm hearing you correctly, that also applies to churches and to other religious uh, buildings that zoning and land use laws might restrict churches from going into certain areas as well. Do, have I heard you correctly? Well, yes. And it's really much more than that. Over the past... Uh hundred years, communities have enacted land use laws, and each decade they re review them, and they've never gotten less regulatory. They've always gotten more regulatory. So everything from, from housing to uh, multiple family housing, manufacturing, uh, different commercial uses, uh, some communities regulate them uh, to a very uh, minute Degree and it's it's about the mentality that uh, the majority of people think through their elective representatives what's best for you to use your land for. This is things not seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with John Mauck, author of the book Paul on Trial and an attorney who specializes in religious land use issues. Malk's work in the 1990s was a cornerstone of the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act, also known as ARLUPA, which became law in the year 2000. 
why in the world would anyone want to make it hard for a religious group to put a house of worship or a mosque or a synagogue or an ashram or a temple in a community? Well, there's there's quite a few reasons. <laughs> uh, the the given reasons are uh, if it's in a if it's in a neighborhood, a residential area, oh, too much traffic, it's going to bother us. If it's in a commercial area, it's like uh, not enough traffic. Uh, they're only out operating a couple days a week, and it interrupts the commercial continuity. So, in those broader senses, everybody's pointing to the other guy and say, "Move over." <laughs> Move over to the other place. But there's also uh, racial prejudice. Uh, these people have a different color. There's economic uh, uh, prejudice. Uh, these people don't have the same income level as ours. There's ignorance. These people speak in tongues. And uh, uh, who knows how crazy that may be. And then from a believer's point of view, there's also spiritual warfare, by which we mean that they're unseen forces, a God by his spirit operating on behalf of his people, and uh, demons and Satan that don't want the light and don't want people to be able to hear the message so they can decide for themselves. So if I'm hearing you correctly, there's there are economic factors, there are political factors, there are ignorance factors, and from a believer's standpoint, there are also deeply spiritual factors involved in religious land use restrictions. Yes, and I forgot taxes. <laughs> so tell us about taxes. And, and, and to governments, the taxes matter a lot. And if religious groups are tax-exempt, no, no sales tax, no real estate tax, many secular-thinking people say, what good are they? And so what what... What benefit, what value do religious organizations and their buildings bring to communities? So let's let's hear the opposite side. We've, we've heard why we might want to restrict religious land use. What good does religious land use bring to a community? Well, there have been some recent studies, actually, uh, uh, one out of the University of Pennsylvania that shows that the average church really saves the community millions of dollars, depending on the size of the church. The bigger the church, the more the savings through saved marriages, through keeping children out of uh, jail and, and uh, juvenile delinquents from uh, committing crimes, uh, through social programs that are helping feed the hungry and, and uh, house the homeless. Um, many collateral uh, benefits besides the spiritual benefit to the people themselves who are learning about God and, and loving God and being able to to live their lives closer to God. Our guest is attorney and author John Malk. His Chicago-based law practice, Malk & Baker, specializes in religious land use issues. His work in this area helped pave the way for the passage of the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act, passed by Congress in the year 2000. This is one of several episodes we've produced for Things Not Seen dealing with religion and the law. You can find links to all those shows, as well as more information about John Malk and his work, at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. We'll be back in a moment. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we offer a rich conversation about culture and faith. Our guest is attorney and author John Malk. His Chicago-based law practice, Malk & Baker, specializes in religious land use issues. 
His work in this area helped pave the way for the passage of the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act, passed by Congress in the year 2000. You can find out more about John Mauck's work at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. I wonder, would you be willing to give us some examples of of religious land use restriction, either here in Chicago or at the national level, where there has been a, a real conflict over a group wanting to use a space for a certain purpose and there there being real pushback from either from the community or from government? Well, we have an organization in Chicago called Civil Liberties for Urban Believers. The acronym is CLUB. And that was formed in the early 90s when the city of Chicago decided to do a sweep of the city and shut down storefront churches that were not permitted or, or, if you will, unlicensed because the government was taking the position, we have a right to say whether you can use this building to worship or not. And so uh, they were picking these off one at a time and shutting these churches down, getting court orders. Uh, but then they decided to start doing sweeps, and particularly on Ashland Avenue and Western Avenue on the south side, uh, they did whole bunches of them at one time. And we happened to get four or five clients at one time. And I was able to tell these folks, you can't afford to fight City Hall by yourself, but let's get together and form an organization so that we can spread the cost around and and support each other. And we were able to save many of those churches from being shut down because we were able to take effective legal action. But most importantly, we were able to get RELUPA enacted. And, and that wasn't because of court decisions. That was because of the prayers of the people uh, in this club organization. When I'm talking about people, I mean African-American inner-city people, Hispanic inner-city people, and uh, Caucasian inner-city or blue-collar uh, Chicago people uh, came together to seek prayer because the Religious Land Use Act uh, was bottled up in Congress, it was going nowhere. It was it was stuck, and we had a series of prayer meetings: May, June, April, May, and June, uh, uh, saying, "God, please move this legislation." Now, these were extraordinary prayer meetings because the people praying didn't know much about law. Some of them didn't even speak English. We had to translate into Spanish, but they knew God, and, and they were fervent. And some were, you know, these are Pentecostal churches, all three of them, where we had these prayer meetings, and uh, uh, there were tears and imploring God, saying we need to be free to share the message with other people about how Jesus loves them and can save them and change their lives, because people just aren't hearing the message or don't have the opportunity. So out of those prayer meetings, I believe a miracle occurred because one month after those prayer meetings ended, I called the folks in Washington and said, what's happening with the Religious Land Use Act? And I uh, talked to some rather conservative uh, uh, Christian evangelicals there who aren't 
like the Pentecostals. <laughs> they don't shout and they don't use miracles. And these guys on the phone said, God did a miracle. <laughs> the Religious Land Use Act became law. And I was utterly stunned because uh, th this thing had been bottled up for, uh, for so long and the impeachment trial had stopped everything with Clinton impeachment. And, and I said, well, how did this miracle occur? And they said, well, it it passed the Senate on a procedural vote and it was going to go then into committee and the, the communities were lined up. The municipal interests didn't want this to pass because it was an infringement on, on their ability to control. And, and so they were holding up everything. But it was the day before Congress was going to recess for the summer and after the House, I mean, excuse me, after the Senate passed the bill by uh, voice vote, uh, the sponsor from the House came in uh, to the Senate sponsor and said, the House is still in session. Why don't we take this bill over to the House? And they did. And the House was just uh, tidying up matters and about to adjourn. And so the sponsor said, uh, Mr. Speaker, we have a bill that's just been passed, the Religious Land Use Act and Institutionalized Persons Act, uh, by the Senate by unanimous consent. I move for unanimous consent of this bill from the House of Representatives. Well, normally the municipal interests would have somebody, anybody, just stand up and say, I object. And if anybody objects, then it goes through this long, lengthy process uh, where basically they strangle the baby in the crib in committee <laughs> and gut it. But nobody said anything. So the Speaker of the House said, is there any objection? Hearing none, he brought the gavel down and, and he said approved. So it passed both houses of Congress unanimously on one day and that was major legislation and that is a miracle of God working through our system. President Clinton subsequently signed the law and it's changed much. If I can back up for just a moment, I want to make sure that I have the timeline clear here. So taking as, as one arbitrary starting point, Employment Division versus Smith, which some interpreted as stripping individuals of their religious rights, Congress reacted by passing the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, RIFRA. The Supreme Court then basically took the fangs out of RIFRA at the state level, but left it as good law at the federal level. And the response then was Congress looking for some way to salvage a protection of religious freedoms at the state level. And do I have it correct that they that they they lit upon religious land use as the way to salvage religious freedoms at the state level? Well, the the two aspects that they were able to put together in RELUPA, land use and Institutionalized Persons Act. Mm -hmm. So the law also protects those who are in prison mm -hmm. and gives them uh, some protection concerning the ability to exercise their faith even though they're incarcerated. So those two specific areas, land use and institutionalized persons protections, are, are the subject of, of RELUPA. And those were the two sort of uh, cutouts that uh, Congress decided uh, would pass constitutional muster. 
Well, John Malk, I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Our guest today has been author and attorney John Malk. Mr. Malk has practiced law for over 30 years and is the author of Paul on Trial, the Book of Acts as a Defense of Christianity. In his law practice, he has often represented churches and ministries in the Chicago area regarding religious land use. In 1998, John Malk was invited to testify before a congressional subcommittee on church zoning issues. His work in this area was instrumental in the drafting of ARLUPA, the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act of 2000. As I mentioned at the top of the show, this is part one of our interview with John Malk. This is one of several episodes we've produced for Things Not Seen, dealing with religion and the law. You can find links to all those shows, as well as more information about John Malk and his work, at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. If you're on Twitter, please take a moment and follow us at Not Seen Radio. If you want to keep up with me and the silly things that I tweet about, you can do that by following at Dalt Radio. We're also on Facebook. You can find us there at facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And one more plug. If you haven't yet discovered our daily Religion Moments podcasts, you're truly missing out on a treasure. Each and every day, our senior producer, Katie Scroggin, finds some highlight from religious history and turns it into this incredible, informative little two-minute gem. Seriously. They're brilliant, they're free, and they happen every day. You should be listening. And even better, we have all of them archived on our website. So if you're just now starting to listen to Religion Moments, you've not missed out on a thing. You can go back and listen to the whole back catalog just like you were traveling back in time. After the break, our producer-at-large, Natasha Alford, looks at the Netflix hit series Orange is the New Black, and she finds some surprising revelations. Spoiler alert, faith plays a bigger role than you might think. We'll be back in a moment. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we offer a rich conversation about culture and faith. The Netflix prison series, Orange is the New Black, has finished its second season and has been a favorite of critics and viewers alike. It's gritty, it's funny, and it features a nearly all-female ensemble cast. The show blends drama and dark comedy, but also manages to explore the spiritual lives of several of its characters. Our producer-at-large, Natasha Alford, offers this review. You have received the Holy Spirit within you. You won't need any medicine. You won't need a Band-Aid. You won't need your beard. He will be that medicine. He will be that Band-Aid. He will be that beard. On the Netflix web series Sensation Orange is the New Black, women of all backgrounds intersect in the community of an upstate New York prison, It's in this setting that we meet a character who brings faith to life, some would say, in all the wrong ways. Her nickname is Pensatucky, a.k.a. Tiffany Doggett, and she is the epitome of a crazy Christian. She calls on Jesus regularly, she thumps a Bible literally, and in episode 10 of season 1, she embarks on a mission to heal people by the Holy Spirit and her hands. She'll try your name, man. All right, all right, all right. You know what? I never claim to have any special powers. I just do as the Lord tells me, and it flows through me. The entertainment of the character Pensatucky is all a matter of perspective. Spoiler alert. Pensatucky ended up in prison after she shot a clinic nurse to death for making a snide comment about her fifth abortion. 
The pro-life picketers who witnessed the murder herald Pensatucky as a shero and help her find God. Pensatucky is objectively unattractive, a caricature of a hillbilly, teeth rotten and hair thoroughly greased. Her tiny physical frame belies the big personality within, but from the perspective of her cronies, she is a spiritual leader, a guru, a woman of faith who knows God, despite her violent, manipulative, and lying ways, and she's someone who has answers for the problems that come with incarceration. For the rest of the prisoners, though, and the rest of us, the audience, we see Pensatucky a little differently. She's delusional, psychotic, unstable, and has even been sent to solitary confinement for psychiatric evaluation. And back in episode 10, the star protagonist of Orange is the New Black, Piper, joins another character in watching Pensatucky preach and heal in the jail community room. Why would anyone ever listen to her, Piper says. What are you talking about, retorts the inmate. Clearly, she has magical powers. The inmate compares Pensatucky's Christian healing efforts to magic, dismisses them as farcical smoke in the air. Is it Pensatucky's maniacal style of evangelism that reduces Christianity to fairy dust? Or is it the absurdity of believing that something like religion could ever bring relief to the reality of these prisoners' struggles? Regardless, Pensatucky's followers are more than happy to stand by her side, and they appear to be some of the happiest of the bunch in the prison, because of their faith. Some clearly have their doubts that Pensatucky is actually performing miracles with her hands, but seeing other women believe makes their doubt go away. And in this episode, seeing really becomes believing, when a scheming fellow inmate tricks Pensatucky into thinking that she actually healed her with her hands, it leads Pensatucky to go on a healing spree of sorts. You did it! You actually did it! You see? You see? You're not like the Wizard of Oz. You're like the Wizard of God. I won't offer a complete spoiler, but watch episode 10 to see how Pensatucky's belief in her healing powers backfires. And here, the episode reveals a common fear for all of us when it comes to faith. That faith in the wrong thing or believing in something that isn't real will backfire. We often fear being taken for a fool by religion, people, even relationships, where we think we see things as they are, but in fact, we're missing a critical piece of information, something that would reveal that the foundation we stand on boldly is indeed flawed. What do we look like to others when we believe in the unpopular, the uncommon, or the downright miraculous? Would it be safer to stand on the sidelines like the teasing characters in this show? As Nietzsche once said, a casual stroll through the lunatic asylum shows that faith does not prove anything. However, the flip side of this question still brings about unease. In a dark and dismal place like the show's Litchfield Prison, non-believers may scoff at Pensatucky and her following, but they still lack an anchor. Some get by with drugs, others illicit sex, and a select few with domination and violence. Whatever their vice, their foundation is shaky. Yes, what they know and rely upon is real. They can taste it, touch it, feel it. But does it inspire hope or merely survival? Perhaps these characters are wise to question blind faith, the kind that has a misguided inmate healing physical ailments with her hands alone. 
but they and we may be better off if we took a more balanced approach to the subject, one that allows for enough flexibility to see things from more than one perspective, and with that perspective, believe that situations and people can actually get better. Natasha S. Alford is a multimedia journalist with a background in education. She works as a reporter in Rochester, New York. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC, with the support of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. Today's show was recorded at WBEZ at their Navy Pier Studios looking out over beautiful Lake Michigan. WBEZ is not responsible for the content of this program. Additional production for this week took place at the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club here in the Chicago Loop and at the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern University. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Mary Gaffney engineered the show. Kim Tron, Mary Morrison, and Katie Scroggin did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Natasha Alford, and Alexander Badena. Our intern is Mary Morrison. Katie Scroggin is our senior producer. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about upcoming guests. That's facebook.com slash things not seen radio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and hear extra audio from our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.